वेलकम टू सनटॉक द सनटॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द इन बिटवीन बाइनरीज विल थिंक अबाउट द बाइनरी नॉन बाइनरी डिस्टिंक्शन इन जनरल एंड आल्सो इन द रियल ऑफ जेंडर एंड सेक्स इन पर्टिकुलर इज जेंडर नेचुरल एंड इम्यूटेबल our binary is oppositional or complementary to the set the boundaries what is socially constructed can the fraternal birth order impact the sexual orientation of later born males is sex different from gender how different are our bodies can history inform our present understanding of these questions do new categories form all the time does or can capitalism alter gender consciousness who's gay will gonads always be bipotential and what lies ahead We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Dr. Deepak Modi, he is a developmental biologist and geneticist at an ICMR institute in Mumbai. Dr. Swati Shah from University of Massachusetts Amherst, having trained as an anthropologist, they are based in the Department of Gender and Sexuality Studies. And Paromita Vora She is a filmmaker and writer and founder of Agents of Ishq. She is based in Mumbai. So, uh, Paromita, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Uh, maybe in a general place of what this whole notion of non-binary means to you, both in the areas in which you worked and are familiar with, but to the extent that you think it can be thought of as a more general notion or a concept, or however hard or strong version you want of it what does it mean and then of course with the help of swati and deepak will go in more specific directions i mean i think that uh, you know non binary thought something that interests me which is not thinking only via oppositions but is able to conceive of several things being true simultaneously and which is not to say that i mean some of those truths may become more prominent at certain moments than at other moments but the possibility that you can continuously engage in a conversational moment rather than in a moment of debate mm-hmm. uh, which is binary uh, conversational moment being that there is a non-binary quality to what you're trying to arrive at and i think there is a sense of making something as you go along something that may or may not already be there of arriving somewhere that happens in that non-binary thought so i think that in my own work for instance i've always been interested not say if i'm making a film on feminism i'm not interested in the for feminism against feminism idea but rather quite interested in what's the spectrum of engagements with the idea of feminism and what are, what are the places where they meet where they diverge where they come together again later so that polyphony uh that heterogeneity in a sense is what i see as allowed by non-binary thinking and what guides or informs that the view that almost everything is a process things always change the present isn't the only time that we'll have and obviously things have happened before us and like what's the what's the underlying metaphysics 
guiding guiding the views that you seem to hold i mean i think that you know very often we are presented with these either or situations right either you are a woman or a man either you are straight or you are gay but in your own life you may actually perceive yourself sometimes not in these categories and be at a loss to explain what it is that you're feeling uh for my own self i would say that as a cis woman uh but also one who's very opinionated very absorbed in my work very interested in my life like my life journey or my map in my head is one of work and discovery and it's not about finding a partner and being coupled up or those sorts of things so when you're outside that normativity you become kind of disallowed of femininity right oh. so for me to reclaim that idea has been quite a struggle and and it and it has been an insistence that you can be this feminine or fem type of person and be all of these things so i think it may produce itself in so many contexts this need for the non binary but i also think that we are given this choice between the private and the public all the time and i don't feel persuaded by that but i always feel persuaded by like three part structures so the idea that the private and the public are two spaces but the personal is a space in which we remix the private and the public and then through that remixing we actually alter the public as well as the private so i think that this idea that things are in are kind of intertwined and intermingling and affecting each other and that also many many processes occur in non ways right like i see the binary way of thinking as being very related to the empirical and to generalizations and categorizations where i don't have to translate you in any way you present yourself as already known and i can just sort you and then figure out where you belong what to do with you etc but actually so you mean the individuality or the uniqueness or the idiosyncrasies are somehow or maybe the mystique of each human being right yeah. like what i can possibly be uh so i think that there's a lot right like what is non verbal in us and how we communicate ourselves what else we can be besides what we are so i'm personally very interested in some very open frames like pleasure glamour which are not very easy to define and is this mode of being or at least framing somewhat lonely or you think there is a need for if if not like major club memberships but at least you know some 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 sense of um, belonging belonging to maybe other people humans who might feel the same way like is that there or is this is somewhat more individualistic well i think that you know it's definitely a spirit of adventure that informs this kind of thinking at one level the willingness to discover what lies instead of having to know where you're headed yeah and i think that yes it is lonely at one level because sometimes it is not seen as discernible sometimes the things that you do or say may not really fit into any category so they're considered to almost not be there but there's also true that there are several people who think like this yeah. so i think as you walk down that path or you wander in that forest or you play in that garden as you would like to put it you always encounter the others and but and, but, but then is that followed by wanting to say that this is this brand of feminism or any otherism and therefore this is like a group of sorts or not really no i mean i i personally don't think there is a need to say that and i think that instead it's interesting to look for those inclusive frames which you can come in and out of right, right. so even if i say the term agents of ishq and the word ishq 
which is not very categorizable. Is it sex? Is it love? Is it desire? Uh, it's actually a very commonplace word in the popular because there's millions of Bollywood songs, but it's also a Persianized word. Right. So actually it allows different people to make its own meaning. And they are all on a kind of even plane relatively insofar as they make a meaning out of it. And their meaning is as valid or invalid as anybody else's. So I think nothing cancels anything out. Let me put it that way. They're all kind of there in an interplay. I may not take all of it. I may not absorb all of it. I may not find all of it interesting. But I don't have the need to invalidate it, right? So I think that these frames are interesting because one thing I find is that, A, they are revelatory, of course. Something you didn't think right. about manifests itself because it says, hey, I belong here too. So these frames of belonging, I think of them more as like kinships. You know? right. There's a kinship that you find with ideas or ways of being yeah. uh, or a color or something. And fandoms are like that, right? Yeah. Fandoms are kinships of just extreme love and adoration of it's a kind of bhakti kind of a sense yeah. right yeah. so I think that there are many existing non-binary frames in this world and citizenship is not necessarily that kind of a frame no? so citizenship yeah. is from another way of thinking and I also do feel like both ways of thinking to coexist I mean I don't believe like the binary is totally invalid either. the binary exists it keeps you know manifesting itself and maybe in and there even some, there, the valence is probably changing the meaning and the sense in which that thing It too is transforms all the time, the binary, as you're saying. Yes, I agree. But I think the binary is useful in binary contexts. There are some worlds like uh, accessing rights, uh, legal systems. There are certain systems of legibility where the binary applies a lot. You may actually travel in that world for some time, but you don't want to be stuck traveling only in one dimension, I think. And none of us do. None of us do travel only in one dimension. Where are you on this, Swati? What is the non-binary for you? And given that you've thought about this in a both an academic sense and otherwise, um, how has this idea come to be? Like, what's the history of this notion? Because you know, one could one could sometimes think of it as an oddity of the current time, but that's probably not the case. So, inform us on this and what is gender, what is sex, what is binary, what's non-binary. It would be very helpful to have you not defined this, but at least help us appreciate how you think of them? So um, I think the concept of dualism actually came to mind as uh, Parumita was speaking, because I think I almost think of that as a kind of quality verging on a fetish of the Western philosophical tradition. Mm -hmm. um, dualisms abound within that tradition, um, particularly you know, dualisms like good, bad, heaven, hell, um, good, evil, and... Um, mind, body. Mind, body, absolutely. Um, and I think that there are other philosophical traditions in which um, that just doesn't make any sense, right? Like, you know, in the kind of Sanskritic tradition, um, the concept of evil is not this sort of clearly demarcated um, thing. You know, it's been said by Indian historians that one of the amazing things about um, Hindu traditions, however you want to define them, is there's no hell, <laughs> right? Like we don't have... You don't the, have the idea of purgatory. We don't have that those concepts. And I, and I, I use Hinduism in, a, in quotes here because sure. there are many different traditions that eventually get merged into the idea of Hinduism that yeah. we are contending with today. So I'm not saying that that's kind of this unbroken millennia-long um, religion or sure. discourse. However, um, I think that there are many philosophical traditions in South Asia that uh, 
would not conform to this notion of a strict dualism. I think that is very much a, a product of um, the way that Western Europe evolved and came to understand itself and came to understand itself in so relation no, to the rest of the world. So there's no heaven, hell, good, evil, at least with the starkness of the bifurcation of the Western tradition, the canons. What is it? Is it is it like a... It's a spectrum. It's more multivariate. It is like, how does one think of that phase space? What is it like? So um, I think I'm not sure I can answer that question with any coherence, but I think I can think about um, what does dualistic or binary thinking um, in that tradition that I'm critiquing here uh, manifest. And one of the things that manifests is this idea of a kind of absolute ethical universe. And I think it would be a mistake to say without this sort of set of strict uh, strict binary thinking or dualisms of, you know, good, evil, right, wrong, that you somehow don't live in an ethical universe. Of course, you human yeah. beings have to live in an ethical universe to live in the world. So... Um, I think there are other ways to think about the kinds of things that dualisms or, or binaries um, describe, um, the concept of a spectrum, concepts of a continuum, or even just, um, you know, maybe thinking that sometimes, for example, with respect to gender, there is such a thing as a gender consciousness, but there need not always have been, yeah. right? That gender itself, for example has a set of historical reference. And um, we don't necessarily need to assume that this has been a framework by which human beings have understood themselves for all of the you know, length of our existence as conscious beings. So I think that um, thinking in relative terms, thinking in historical terms is very important for putting these kinds of frameworks into perspective. Um, if if I'm going to think about what binarism means in relation to sex and gender, I think about um, the idea that there are two categories only and that everything outside of those categories is somehow um, irrational or not disorders, disorders yeah. uh, abnormal, um, that they are not, they do not contribute to the viability of the species. Um, in because of because of inability or unwillingness to reproduce or yes uh, right so um, in gender studies the way we teach this is we talk about the relationship between sex and gender um, as conforming to different kinds of um, ideological paradigms and one paradigm um, I would call biological determinism, which um, would propose that if um, someone is assigned a certain sex at birth, then that sex at birth needs to be commensurate with uh, an adult gender, right? So if you're assigned female sex at birth, you need to be a woman as an adult. At the age of 18 or 20 or 21 or whatever, or whatever it is. somewhere and that, after pu puberty. And yeah. that you should at least have the capacity to reproduce even if you don't yourself reproduce. Now, Another way to think about this is you are assigned a sex at birth, right? That moment of, you know, an, a, a, an adult presumably looking at an infant's genitals and deciding That's this is an a male or female. Yeah. An, an anatomical inference. And then um, that assignation determining 
all kinds of things about how that individual is socialized, how that individual's gender is um, disciplined, right? This is appropriate for you. This is not appropriate for you. And that the result would be adult cisgender, whatever, cisgender maleness or cisgender females. And and everything outside of that is um, incorrect, essentially. The reason why we are speaking about this in these terms, right? These are critical terms for biological determinism is because of things like uh, queer movements and transgender movements. And also, I think the intersex movement, you know, the movement of people who are intersex and adult and who talk about the kind of, um, you know, horrible, painful, unnecessary surgeries that they had to undergo in order to, quote unquote, correct their sex because they're genitalia didn't conform to one or the other category. Um, I think that those things have, those movements have really been very important in rethinking and reimagining the the regime of binary gender. Um, so this intersex, this, this, is this for you a natural kind or at birth? I'm talking about at birth. So intersex um, could be defined in a number of ways. Um, I think both uh, intersex activists as well as some scholars who've worked on this issue would define it as um, people whose genitalia don't conform to one or the other sex. So there's like a, a certain threshold at sure. which, you know, a penis, an infant penis is considered too small to be a real penis or, sure. you know, or that there's quote-unquote, ambiguous genitalia with respect to being categorized as male or female. But, um, I mean, earlier I I heard you say, you know, is gender natural and immutable or is it something else? And I would actually suggest that nature is mutable. Nature itself. Nature is mutable. Things evolve. Things change. There's there's actually... You mean, a, you mean biological evolution? I mean uh, biological evolution and um, phenotypic diversity, that there are, there's just lots of diversity in the world. There are lots and lots of different ways that plants and animals um, manifest ourselves phenotypically, physically. In that context, I see things like binary gender um, and binary sex as um, historically um, produced frameworks to understand the physical form. The complication is that— When you say historically produced, Vati, just to be sure on that, you like w- w- what is the defining moment or era or phase? Like why, why would that happen? Well, I think it happens in different places at different points in time. Um, I think about some of the early European colonial records of the colonial encounter where one of the things that uh, European colonists were reacting to when they encountered people in Africa or people in South Asia was things like, you know, the women don't cover their breasts or they don't seem to have a normative sexuality. It's chaos. You know, they're doing everything all the time. Like they, they did not encounter a Christian sex gender binary framework. And this was prior to the rubric of science. This is within the rubric of Christianity and of what became capitalist I think a little bit, later, in fact. But, um, you know, I would say that this happens in different places at different points in time. I would take seriously the fact that in much of the world, 
for a long time, human societies were not necessarily organized according to binary gender. Um, so when I say historically produced, what I mean is, um, you know, human beings as... So primarily colonial encounters, primarily you know, some form of Catholicism or whatever, at least that kind of worldview or approach, or some combination of these factors. I think it's very complicated. I'm it would sure. be difficult for me to say this Draw is two why. Lines, of course. Of co- but I think... Um, the point to make is that for me is that I think it's good to dislodge the idea that um, binary gender is a Imitable. fact of human existence for all time, yeah. um, which is not to say that we don't have bodies that don't have genitals and that we don't have reproductive systems and so on. But I mean that uh, binary gender has not always been the rubric by which we have understood one another and Would categorized one another. Would you say that there are two dominant phenotypes? What do you mean? Like male and female. Of course, there are others. I would say male and female is part of the framework by which we understand a categorization of human phenotypes, and it is not the only way we can categorize human beings. Yeah, so which is why I said dominant. So I'm going to answer that kind of obliquely. Sure. Um, I think one of the things that people who talk about socially produced categories often get misunderstood as saying is that there's no such thing as a physical world and we're just, you know, all, you know, I tell you to be some way and then you're going to be that way, yeah, right? You like, just decide. It's a form you just decide. Take it from a menu. It's like a, yeah. it's a very agentative kind of an act of will. Voluntarism. Yeah. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that um, human beings are social creatures and that we need the social in order to develop physically. Like our brains need interaction. We need stimulus in order to develop. And that stimulus includes a system of, um, for lack of a better word, punishments and rewards, sure. right? You're like kind of taught, you know, don't put your hand in the fire. Yes, you know, have this thing that tastes sweet. Like there are lots of ways that we reinforce certain behaviors and we prevent others. And that process of socialization also creates certain physical proclivities in our bodies. So, you know, we're very much embedded within the social world, but sure. it would be... Um, a misnomer, I think, to say that some things are purely biological and others are purely social. These things kind of go together in ways that are deeply enmeshed. What is socialization for you, Deepak? And we'll obviously go to the biology stuff that you know better. But, but you know, this obviously from the time the the sperm and the egg meet and, you know, they become a gamut or whatever and, you know, the development happens... Um, the time that a baby comes to the world. Is is there socialization happening prior to birth? Apparently there is. Okay. Apparently... Um, we'll, we'll, we'll touch that. Fetuses and uh, creatures, gestating creatures, do get some signals, which is different than is, is a fetus alive or not, which yeah. is not something I'm addressing. What is socialization for you? So that's kind of difficult for me to answer because, uh, you know, from a biologist's perspective, socialization means several things. I mean, whether how you socially interact or how we uh, socially behave with each other or how we are socially positioned. So I would generally avoid answering that uh, question. Sure. I, I obviously meant it in the limited sense up to the extent that it has, from your vantage point, a biological impact or 
you know it leads to some change in, the, in this point about you know how you get choose your gender at some point in time but anyway i'll let you what is binary non binary for you okay binary so in biology everything is binary yeah we understand biology by by one or the other form yeah. so we we say male and females we say a live or a dead cell a moving or a static cell so as biologists we love to define two extremes and then see what's happening in between and and that's where we begin our studies and that's where so so in terms of sex or so we always say that sex is binary we you're male or female you females are xx and males are xy if you're a human being or any of the mammals and is is the idea of sex only chromosomal or there is other stuff that so, leads yes, to so yes for us it begins with the idea of sex is chromosomal that it, it, the genes which define you whether you're a male or a female then that translates into phenotypic sex and mm-hmm. then as you rightly pointed it it is expected it would also be congruent to the psychological sex which is sexuality but, which is sexuality right and then so gender, there's gender there's you, sex and the sexuality how do you identify yourself as mm-hmm. so the problem is not that things are not binary i think i think everything is binary but expecting that everything has to be then eventually be congruent with each other right. is a problem and that's where the whole societal problem begins with i think that the belief that i mean we don't want to believe things are binary because we don't want to categorize into but i think it's it's a spectrum and if it is a spectrum the spectrum has to has to have a start and an end and things have to be in between and the problem is that we believe that everything from the left has to be congruent from the left to the right which is a problem so i think the congruency is a problem here and not the concept of binary that's what my thought process would be but what happens to intersex i mean how do you categorize then the idea of the intersex so the idea of the intersex so the problem started with identifying intersex was that we began by saying that everything has to be either a male or a female so at the chromosomal level yes. uh, is the category or the zone or that phase on the spectrum of intersex either xs or xx or xy yes yeah, so intersexes also would be either xx or xy mm-hmm. but the genitals did not, are not congruent with the genetic so the gonadal level is different yes at the gonadal level there's a difference or at the phenotypic level the penises are not the same as that of the testes mm-hmm. so these individuals do exist and that's not a problem it's this defining that this is a problem has started the issues that categorizing everything into the two extreme forms of being black and white and not expecting shades of gray is a problem i mean uh, i think it's interesting to hear you say that because i think it's making me think about the critique we often make in uh in feminist studies gender studies that that expectation of congruence is actually an ideological expectation that props up a a, a gender system in which every human being is expected to uh reproduce uh, normatively right that that kind of expectation of a heteronormative society is actually what produces this idea of what's normal and abnormal i mean i'm speaking from the lens of foucault's history of sexuality and yeah. you know the the kind of idea that um there are ideological regimes that Uh, maintain the status quo you know that everybody they're hegemonic regimes so people participate in them they're not like somebody's not telling you be heteronormative but it's produced as normative and people are trained to try to reproduce it and that system also requires an outside it requires non-normative others and it requires this idea of congruence in order to function oh, oh, oh definitely but if you also look at reproduce 
I mean, evolution means, I mean, that that survival of fittest and the ability to reproduce has been evolutionary. It's not just restricted to humans. Every species wants to reproduce so that it it continues. So whether it's 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 E. coli's and bacterias to fungi's to whatever, as soon as sexual reproduction began to bring in the entire spectrum of genetic diversity, and the requirement to reproduce is fundamental to any innate living being. We cannot disregard the fact that just because reproduction is to be put on us and therefore we need binary and therefore we need congruence. Deepak, can the intersex reproduce? Intersex, yes, after surgical interventions, Before, yes. as they are born? Um, depends on the kind of abnormality that is there. So suppose if they are micropenis, maybe not. If the vaginas are blind, maybe not. And also needs, you know, the, the gonads sometimes form but they do not sustain in that phase because the rest of the system is not then in place. I think the, the, the category, if one may use the word that Swati is referring to, the category which is phenotypically male or female at birth or in early childhood, but but experiences, uh, I think we're talking about the sexuality side differently. Um, how prevalent is that from the data that you know of or whatever you whichever way you think of this. So I don't think there is much of data on, I mean, Swati, you can uh, let me know that among intersex individuals, uh, how, how do they uh, perceive themselves in form of gender? I don't think there are such studies available which can tell that, okay, it's, it's ambiguous, the genders were not defined, and how do they grow up eventually and perceive themselves as? I'm talking of the unambiguous phenotypes, but mm-hmm. uh, ambiguous sexuality or sexuality, but that does not conform to... No, so are, are we still discussing intersex, which which would technically mean that the no, gender could not be assigned? No, we're discussing not intersex, but either male or female at birth, phenotypically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but which turn out to be the you know one of these gay or lesbian or any other. So, if you're talking of transgenders, mm-hmm. so so uh, in one of my talks, we we always put up this concept that the gonads, when we develop, are bipotential. They have the ability to form either the testis or the ovary. Whether you are XX or XY doesn't matter. And then the genetics come into interplay and then it gets into either or the other end of the spectrum. When does that happen, Deepak? So in humans, uh, it happens with somewhere between six to seven weeks of gestation. So uh, at, at seven or eight weeks of gestation, perhaps the gonads, which are bipotential, has started making a decision to either go to the testis or the ovarian phenotype. And then it makes the necessary hormones to then either masculinize or feminize the individual. And then that was believed that it also primes the brain appropriately that okay the male hormones come and masculinize the brain the females hormone come and feminize the brain and this when overlaid eventually post-birth by social encounters that the individual becomes congruent or non-congruent however this again gives a very binary perspective to everything now if we look at the brain we perceive ourselves of what we are from the brain and each morning we don't have to get up and look down that okay today I'm a male or a female we, we, we just know what we are. Even gays, if you speak to many gays, lesbians, very early on in life, they'll almost tell you that I think I was not normal. I don't, I mean, not normal in the sense I didn't perceive myself liking women. I liked men more. I would see male advertisements, many gay tend to. So I think, I think that priming is already there way before things are even manifested later on in life. So it's somewhere the brain wiring is occurring differently. So now I argue back that if the, if the testis has the, with the gonads has the ability to decide, the brain also perhaps has the ability to decide to go in one of the two directions. And it's perfectly fine that the brain decided to go in the other direction as the gonad. 
I think it's okay. Why should it be a problem? So um, when I hear hear you saying this, um, I hear one perspective on sex that I think is particularly prevalent among uh, biologists and genetic researchers and a lot of pediatric neuroendocrinologists. Um, I think there's also another perspective on so-called biological sex, which is that the thing that we call sex is actually a very capacious term biologically, that it's not just chromosomal. There's chromosomal sex, there's hormonal sex, there's gonadal sex, but that taken together, there is not a real basis to argue for a masculinized or feminized brain, and that um, the idea that sex so is... So we are all androgynous in some shape and form, too. No, it's more like um, that there is a, um, a way in which there is a rationale for sex that is focused on the body and an idea of biology as immutable, and that this has a certain ideological valence and a history. Um, the other thing that I think there is a debate about is whether evolution can be described as survival of the fittest. There's some critiques like from uh, David Graeber and David Wengro, um, mm. two anthropologists that we were talking about earlier, um, but many others who would argue that Darwinian ideas of evolution were actually being formed in relation to the kind of economic systems that were being instantiated at that time, to um, capitalist uh, perspectives on development, and to very teleological notions of development. And that if you look at the evolutionary record, you don't see a kind of straight linear trajectory from less to more developed. I mean, sure, you can make a narrative of that kind, but there's lots of other ways. If you look at every single kind of evolutionary development in every species or, you know, even in the earth, you know, geologically, there's a lot of, you know, things that don't quite work out, uh, lateral moves. Um, everything is not necessarily the story of going from less to more, which is kind I mean, of less the telos. Fit to more fit or whatever. Less fit to more fit, less developed to more developed. The linearity that that implies is perhaps a misnomer for what we see in um, the fossil record or in the in the geological record. So, so not to debate this, but to say that these are all subject to debate. There are different perspectives on all of these questions. What else determines the gender uh, for you? So chromosomes. So I don't think chromosomes are the ones which determine gender. Chromosomes determine when the, the sex. sex. Right. Let, let's be very clear on okay. that. Because that's one thing which a lot of people, I mean, many people in a biology, especially, right, mice of both the genders were used. I say mice don't have genders, perhaps. Right. Gender is something, a social construct, which we have evolved of the way one is expected to behave. Right. So mice have sex is what we begin with. And because... From our perspective, from, from our an perspective, anthropocentric from perspective, perspective, maybe absolutely. they have society. Maybe they have a society. There's some socialization going on. But at least it, yeah. nobody has reported that the females are, are reared differently as compared to males in the mouse, at least. I know observational studies. Is there homosexuality in animal kingdom at large? Oh, yes, plenty. There is a lot of evidence of homosexuality. There are, there are pigeons. There are species of penguin, which is actually exclusively homosexual. However, it goes to the female only to breed and then eventually comes back to its male partner. And then there are lions, which are homosexuals. So there, there is enough evidence of homosexuality in almost every 
reproductive or sexually reproducing species. And again, as a developmental biologist, if you would say that something similar is happening, their chromosomal development goes one way, gonadal development goes one way, but the sexuality is different. Yes, yes. Exactly the same frame. Perhaps. At least for the mammals and the larger animals. Yes, at One least can do that with bacteria animals. and fungi. Yeah, we don't know about them. We don't understand much of them, how sexuality functions there. But at least for the mammals, yes. When there is a social construct evolving, yes, there are. So animals have a social construct. Definitely they do. Females go together, the males go together. There are certain tasks assigned to each other. So I think it's evolutionarily, we can't disregard this whole idea that social construct should not exist or binary should not exist. The problem is expecting everything to fit into that binary is a problem. What is sexuality for you, Parameter? What is sexuality? As in the lived As experience so, so of sex. Since <laughs> that's what I think sexuality is. It's the yes. lived experience of sex. I think so. No, I think <laughs> since since the time you last spoke, we've kind of made these three things now: sex, gender, and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've heard you a little bit on the prior to. Uh, just want to see what your views on the third. But, I mean, I think sometimes I'm a little uncomfortable with the way that you know these things get conflated a bit, right? Mm-hmm. Like talking about gender and talking about sexuality. Yes, we talk about them together. There are departments of gender and sexuality. (laughs) And we understand that we are doing it also to query these social constructs of what is determined um, by so-called nature as being unchanging and uh, what is created in response to certain historical moments and processes, right? And that's as true of sexuality. But the history of desire, let's say, or the history of wanting sex and practicing sex is always non-binary in my opinion. Like it doesn't actually... So it might be very interesting to think about all the spaces in which non-binariness actually prospers, which is a little bit an extension of what Swati is saying. In fact, in in the way you describe it, it makes me think that the space of sexuality Hmm. is is the most non-binary. I mean, it's a place in which the non-binariness becomes very evident, but I don't think that there's one place which is more non-binary than the other. So to give an example, and I think that this colonial idea is not so easily to be dismissed because there is a way in which the colonial view of the world is also a kind of panic attack <laughs> at seeing something. It's, it's a way of bringing order to chaos. The Euro- yeah. European chaos. colonial. Well, European, European colonial. colonial. Yes, yes. Yes. Because bringing not... But it is about what you perceive as chaos, right? I mean, traffic, which is something in India, I always think that it's so remarkable that when we're in a traffic jam, the first thing that your auto driver will tell you is, there must be a traffic cop out ahead. (laughs) So the traffic cop is trying to bring order to what it perceives as chaos and disallowing movement. I think this is a very interesting thing, that somehow on their own, in narrow roads, people find their own way around traffic. But the moment you try to impose that order, suddenly everything becomes immobilized. So I think of colonial perspectives in, say, South Asia or East Asia and the way all kinds of varied and heterogeneous practices are suddenly invalidated, yeah. are either criminalized or abnormalized or point. Yeah. primitive culture, so on and so forth. So I think... Taboo, the whole idea of taboo. The idea of the taboo. And, yeah. you know, when we spoke earlier, I spoke about how I don't believe in this idea of smashing taboo and smashing patriarchy and smashing things because it's a binary idea that I will replace one system with another system and my system will somehow be better. So I do think that nature suggests a deep entanglement of things. There is so much entanglement. There is so much feeding off of each other. There is so much of mimicking each other, mirroring each other. There is so much that goes on in nature that is so interesting 
and it allows us to think completely differently. So if you think about cultures which are, say, pantheistic or which are, you know, like forest cultures, right. which actually embrace a completely different philosophical idea of the world and are very comfortable with seeing a thing that they may not have which, been seen which before. Which the European colonialists would call pagan. Yeah, 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 yeah. which yeah. they would call pagan. And the thing is that also this kind of ordering of the world, when it's colonial, then it's anthropological, and eventually it's capitalist, right? Like we cannot forget that the East India Company was the primary means of colonization and it was basically capitalism. So like colonialism, capitalism, travel, science, all these things are happening side by side and they're producing a way of looking at the world and organizing the world. So yes, if we talk about sexuality in India, I would say like look at the ways, the, the concepts that persist even until today when we say something is, he, wo mera bola bhai hai. Wo meri boli beti hai. Right? That we... Yeah, we we're say, assigning sisterhood and sonhood or whatever. Yes, I've assigned sisterhood <laughs> yeah. at meeting, not at birth, but it is like, and I will observe. There are so many practices, you know, where uh, you have like uh, practices of friendship where you uh, tie like this grass stalk in some communities. You, you, in the paddy field, the person you work alongside, she becomes your lifelong friend. Right. And then your family treats her like a sister. These practices even happen across caste. So actually, you are seeing very, very polyphonic practices in right. actuality. You will be, how many people will go to Novena uh, at Mahim Church who are not Christian? Yeah. How many people go to Ajmer Sharif who are not Muslim? Yeah. How many people are probably going to Vaishno Devi? who are not Hindu. My neighbor, uh, who was Catholic, one day I knocked on the door and she opened in full gold regalia and Mehndi, I'm like, what's going on? Did you get married last night without telling me? She's like, no men, I'm keeping Karwa Chauth. So no she men. was engaged. <laughs> she was engaged. It was soon after Dilwale Dulhanya Le Jayenge. Karwa Chauth was a big fad. And she's like, shh, don't say it loudly because my sister will hear. So the thing is that, why is she doing it? She's doing it to participate in something with others. It doesn't make her less Christian or more Hindu or nothing, right? Yeah. So I think actually there there, there is are different thing. realms, the realms which are we exist in different realms. Each one of us does. The person, the our most private self, does not cohere to our most public self. And we are also moving around. No? Yeah. Yes. And we are we we too are changing who we are. We move through time. So if life is just a little movement through time for each of us, in that time period only we are so so mutable that I don't understand. For me, I think the real question at the center of it is why there is a resistance to the non-binary, right? Like I think that in a way what Deepak is saying is that the binary, I also do think the binary appears and there are times we use the binary and live in the binary also. And I think of the binary and non-binary, that without the binary, there's no non-binary. Where, where, so. <laughs> where are you on whether there is something innate, whether there's something essential? I think because the the, the, the level at which you describe this is at the level of appearance, hmm. what, what you see on the surface. Of course, we have our inner selves and there's stuff going on. Hmm. But how would you think of the innateness, essential question? So I think that, you know, it's, it's a hard to answer question because every time we feel there have been many moments, especially say when I have a fight with somebody or when you run into conflict with something, right? And a conflict is not always a binary moment, but it is a moment of sorting. Yes. Like when you decide that I can't be friends with this person anymore. Okay, I, this is, I have to leave this relationship. It's a kind of a binary moment where you're making an either or choice. Yes. And very often in such things, I have a friend who once said to me that, you know, the most interesting thing is when you tell these stories to me, 
they're all stories about how you didn't want your essence to be corrupted. Mm. And so I thought like, okay, is there an essence of me that I suddenly at one moment I feel I cannot compromise this anymore? Maybe there is, maybe there is. I really don't know the answer to that, but it's experienced as one, right? That I, Somewhere I have the chance to know the essence of me the more I go away from the norm. I have, that's what we think, right? And yet we also know that probably even that essence is produced by something outside us. My question is whether it's very, very necessary for me to identify where something comes from. I don't really have that real estate way of looking at the world. If something is there, <laughs> you know, I have my own sensory methodology of trying to trust or not trust it. So I think it, it, it does. But I want to just tell a couple of things that I have learned because at Agents of Ishq, we do not mandate we, it's not a prescriptive side about sexuality, right? Like we are not saying there's a good sexuality and a bad sexuality. We're just saying it's experientiality of sex in your life. And so whether you're monogamous, whether you're polyamorous, straight, asexual, bi, whatever it is, your experiences are. What is can, asexual? Asexual people who feel that it's not necessarily natural that you want to have sex. Right. You know, so and is of that course, okay, Deepak? Yes, perfectly it's, fine. <laughs> It, it, I mean, the sex centers decided not to do anything, and yeah. that's fine. Yeah. But asexuality is very interesting because people feel they may also shift in their lifetimes and no longer be asexual. Within asexuality, there's gray sexual and demisexual and many gradations. So it's an interesting, like I think of it as a very philosophical kind of concept to question the idea of is sexuality just a very unitary experience for everybody, which it's not, right? No, but, which is not. And I feel it's also transformative because I think that whole problem is you want to categorize, okay, I'm asexual and I have to remain asexual all my life. Yeah. Why it should be? Why can't I transform or move to? Because you all are fluidic in a way. But I think it's also like, like the sex debate it is also questioning is there a definition of sex which is very related to intercourse or what we've now begun to call naked sex like when we when we have these conversations and we start arriving trying to find the word and then finally we are going with like okay you don't want to have naked sex with everybody but there's erotic content in many relationships right is that eroticism sex or is it not sex right right so these these questions vex us because they also lead to categorization of relationships which are valid or not valid and which therefore deserve ethical treatment or don't deserve ethical treatment. And institutions like marriage, marriage. and that. Well, that's where... Even you continuously hear stories like, well, we it was just a WhatsApp relationship. Yeah. But there was an intimacy, right? So, yeah. But now I can pretend that intimacy wasn't there because actually it's not part of whatever frameworks are currently available to us. So I think that what but what I've seen when you start opening up this experiential way of looking at things, people tell you very interesting things. So a couple of things that uh, one person who wrote a story which I love about being kinky and discovering their kinky was like they didn't know. They had different sexual experiences when they were growing up. Uh, they were a man who had sex with a boy in their class and uh, they were always the one who was penetrated and when they would sleep they would have dreams after they had sex, of having sex with their best friend who was a woman, but the woman was penetrating them. So they were like, why do I have these dreams? And then one day while playing a game of charades, they had to mime the film Joruka Gulam. And when he said, when I knelt down to mime Joruka Gulam, I was flooded with this feeling, this is what I am. Right. Now, this story is very beautiful for me. Is I that innateness? I don't know what it is. That but moment? Is that tapping into this? this because when, when you said, this is who I am, he is said, that the sense of self? They, yeah, they, they or yeah, she or he? Yeah. Yeah. He, he said, 
this is who I am. He felt it. And for him, it was a poetic moment, you know. So I want to say that, is it innate or not? I really don't know. But he did not have much awareness of kink. Yeah. And this moment opened up for him a search online. And, you know, then he found his communities and his sexual expression. And But for me, it's a fascinating tale that yeah. sexual desire communicates itself outside of whatever is told to us as a norm. And that's very interesting to me. And I, what I really love about the way you're narrating this story is that what you are describing to me is this person discovering the truth of himself. Yeah. So when you're asking, is it innate, is it essential, I think what I hear you asking is, is there such a thing as a truth of the self? And I would say, of course there is, but I think that focusing on what's innate or essential in what get presented as purely biological terms is too assumes uh, yeah. it's reductive and it assumes a kind of hard wiring that is not also observable yeah. physically, right? I mean, there there are many different kinds of potentials that organic um, entities have. So if you say what is kind of physically essential, my response from a kind of social science perspective would be what's essential is a set of potentials. And those potentials have limits and they have manifestations. But And then your experiences, encounters, et cetera, et cetera, um, lead you to go in multiple directions. And yeah. it's a very complicated process that is a, the, your kind of physical response to the world in which you have to grow and survive. I mean, human beings are not fully gestated when we are born. Our brains develop in relation to the our social environments. Um, the affect, you know, the feelings that we have also help us to develop. So it's not that um, we don't feel the world in our physical bodies, but our physical bodies are a set of potentials, and those potentials are constantly being iterated. And I think that's one of the things that social theory is trying to talk about is the ways in which social categories like gender, sexuality, race, caste are in constantly in a process of being produced. It's not like they're produced once at a certain age or that they're produced for people who are seen to be existing outside of the norm. They're produced for everybody all the time. Uh, can I just add something? You know, like when you ask a question, is something innate? What I'm almost sure is, is it verifiable? Right? No. Or is it simply, like, because I wonder, I'm just wondering, if some of these questions that we ask, like where we want to know for sure. I think, so just, just so that you, that I convey what I ask. When so, I when I say innate, I mean, is it, is it at least some kind of a semi-destination? So it, I would is say somewhat an, another way of thinking fluid. about it. Yeah. So yeah. another way of thinking about it is that there's an aspect of ourselves which is prosaic. Right. And there's an aspect of ourselves which is poetic. Poetic, right? yeah. So, and those two are in interplay, right? So it's the nirgun aspect of ourselves. And I was thinking how much medical discourse actually determines the way we want to look at something. So is something symptomatic, right? Now, obviously, that's very important in medical discourse. I don't think it would be right for us from another perspective to say, that, oh, symptoms and talking about symptoms and making everything symptomatic is, you know, uh, is, is wrong because it's very necessary in the medical. Am I right? Yeah. Yes. I don't want to yes. speak for the yes. medical. 
one side or the other are there other manifestations because one is just trying to understand how thin or thick that notion is is that how how yes so uh, medical science to a large extent up to now had been severely flawed by believing that sex is binary and rest of it is everything sex neutral so we don't say like as you rightly said that is there a male brain or a female brain you said there is not enough evidence and there was similarly same applied to the liver that is there's no male or female liver and that as a consequence has led to a lot of issues in medical sciences for example the ability of women to metabolize certain drugs is very different as compared to men outside of the reproductive organs outside of the reproductive these are not hormonal pills this right. is a, a sleeping pill let's say for example ambien the women metabolizes slower than men mm-hmm. and all the clinical trials done up to now whatever drugs each one of us in this room take have always been only and only tested in men believing that they'll apply to women equally because everything was thought to be sex neutral and now it turns out that that's a big problem because now the woman was dosed with amount of drug which was okay for a man but now she's sleeping much longer she drives home or she drives to office and creates more accidents because she's more prone the drug is still there in her system so believing that things are not binary believing that there is nothing sex beyond the gonads is a problem because in the medical science for example women are more susceptible to autoimmune disorders more men have cardiac arrest but if a woman has a cardiac arrest it's, it's far more lethal to her 
And I would add to that that I think part of the reason for that is um, cardiac arrest is seen to be a male illness, that there just haven't been large-scale studies on cardiac arrest among women. A lot of times, cardiac arrest doesn't look the same in women as in men. It looks like indigestion and is misdiagnosed. And I think it's interesting that you bring up autoimmune issues because um, in the book, The Body Keeps the Score, which is a book about trauma in the body, I think that that book actually has a lot of lessons for the ways in which human bodies absorb the world differently in in relation to things like stress right so um, stress is a chemical that's released in our bodies right? right cortisol is released in our bodies our adrenal glands are involved the amygdala is involved so that stress response actually if that stress response never stops like if you're always stressed for whatever reason, then you're because of to autoimmune because of misogyny, because of the gender racism. binary, because of racism, you then are kind of carrying the effects of that physically, and you are more prone to have autoimmune disorders. It's not iatrogenic. It's not because your body is somehow flawed and just prone to having autoimmune issues. It's so because in this case, the causes would be social systemic rather than entirely biological. Well, it would be that enmeshing no, no, no. of the I, social I and the biological. biological. I think there are enough evidence just to say that the way the genes metabolize in the woman's body are very, very different than men. And it's innate because remember that all of these genes which are made, the proteins which are made, are made by the, the nucleus. The nucleus has to fold in a certain way. And the way nucleus folds between a XX and a XY is very, very different. The folding is very different. So I would say it's a debate. I would have a different perspective. There is, there is evidence. There is scientific evidence. If you, if you look at papers, there are clean evidence just to say that male brains and female brains, XX and XY brains to be more specific. In societies which are non-patriarchal, somewhat equal, and so on. Like, uh, Forget a society. They don't do those fetus. kinds of comparative studies. No, and they also assume from the beginning that the binary sex regime is the normative regime that doesn't have to be tested. They just apply that framework to things like the human brain. I'm not convinced that there is such a thing as a male brain and a female brain. And I would refer to the book Brainstorm for some of this critiquing of the idea that that so, exists. So, so you think that there is no XX and XY? Of the course, there's XS and XY. But what I what I would disagree about is the um, knock-on effects of that. The kind of explanatory power that chromosomal sex has. I think in some ideological frameworks, chromosomal sex has a lot of explanatory power that it doesn't merit. I think it's a very reductionist approach because. Because it's, it's, it's the genes which decide a lot of other things, right? I mean, we believe so that, that our genes like decide our skin color. So that sounds like a reductionist approach to me. We, we decide the genes decide our <laughs> skin color. We decide the genes, what, what they do to us. We, the genes metabolize what drugs we are having. The genes gives us experiences and how we perceive them. There are enough genes assigned to them. And when, when these two are very different, I mean, are the there, genes are there, have are to be switched epi, on and off. Uh, are there epigenetic Yes, factors? and the way they're switched on and switched off is very different, coming to epigenetics. Yeah. That, that there are things which decide to be switching on and switching off and the way those decision makings are done is very different between XX and XYs. So so it has to translate to something. 
it, it it can't be simply that you know we disregard them and believe that oh this this things just doesn't exist it's just there to decide whether you're going to be xx or xy and that's the end of the so world Swati, nobody's deciding anything people are looking at the scientific research and kind of unpacking it so it's also absolutely you know and like this is a kind what of a understood today science and technology studies has critiqued some of the fundamental assumptions of these studies i mean you know for example with respect to things like whether there is a, a chemical basis for so-called homosexuality in rodent studies um a lot of those studies have shown to be uh based on the assumptions of the researcher from the beginning they're not seen to be kind of emic within you know rodent societies or anything like that where 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 does uh, besides references where does biology come in for you swati what do you mean what is biology So I what, think what I will what is biology I will uh, where do our bodies come in what is the body besides being the site of uh, the society and the interactions and the systems impinging on it and informing it and so on So I don't want to be understood to say that the body is irrelevant what I'm trying to speak from is a perspective that sees the body as enmeshed within social relations that also produce a physical man there's a physical manifestation of those social interactions in our bodies but it is different than saying that there is a bottom line the buck stops with the body the body is in some ways a kind of its own force that is not impacted by what goes on outside of it and that's the place where i would start to have disagreements so sure, that's fine where's the headed what's the future paramita thousand <laughs> years later the futurist in you has to turn on her futuristic gene right now i'm not in seer mode so i can't <laughs> say but I, i i was just thinking that you know i personally find the non binary everything non binary fertile and so not reproductive but fertile fecund with ideas right so i also think that maybe the way that we talk about sex gender sexuality even the way that we talk about it needs to be non binary right like i feel we often get stuck in the provability and unprovability of something whereas really it's in processes of understanding that are underway right. so i feel like maybe if we talked about this a little bit differently then it would lead to something like a kind of a beautiful understanding how should one talk about it well, so think, how does one talk about i think we are always trying to find out whether it's correct or incorrect right like that's often the gaze that we are bringing to everything and actually what we're saying is that it's unfolding and that we are understanding that what we thought was correct before is maybe not an absolute truth right i don't think this is a very difficult thing to understand actually but i feel there's a lot of resistance when it comes to sex gender and sexuality because it's so if we feel it's in it we have been brought up over a long period of time to believe this is us and it is yeah it is actually a paradigm shift so we are scared of that paradigm shift so we are often trying to somehow bring it in control but i think that maybe if we didn't do that we would understand a bit more that's what so i think so for a second let's uh, for a second for thought experiment purposes hmm. let's not think of the non binary and think of just the two extremes hmm. um do you think there's such a thing as a man and a woman and they have innateness those ends Actually, I no. must say I don't feel that innateness maybe that's a, fa- a thing that you know even though i feel like men 
broadly speaking are no i'm saying how i experience it that do sure. i feel that broadly speaking i will say oh men behave this way and i'll make of course certain statements that i feel i've observed yeah. repeatedly in men right men mansplain or men tend to see the world in and this way and they could way. have been socialized over many many centuries yeah. and, and by, by their own mothers in the childhood and so or on or their fathers or their fathers <laughs> and, yeah. and everybody else and yeah. everybody yeah. else yeah. The whole and, world. and then absolutely of course deepak might tell me that well the brain also has a lot to do with that and so it's influencing some of the ways they process what is happening outside and that interplay of body and world is of course going to be present how can it not but but at the same time i don't know i think that you see a variety of those innatenesses is what i'm trying to say so as if all men behave the same and all women behave the same or feel the same that's all so there's already presence of the non binary in the binary is actually what i'm trying yeah. to say so i mean extending this question i was just thinking that you said a very nice example that you know there is nothing all is innateness but there is a innateness <laughs> you know which is which is contradictory on its yeah. own do do we believe that innateness has to be static and just the same throughout No. perhaps not i think mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. this point i have something innate in me mm-hmm. which might change so innate is not necessarily time. fixed it innate is that's what i think that innateness is not but today i have certain innateness in me this is what i identify myself as and this is what i am today i don't promise it had to be the same tomorrow what's the future deepak where are the sided basis what you know basis what you know of scientific research basis you know what you Here, people like Swati and social theorists and other perspectives, and to the extent you think about this, where are we going on this binary, non-binary question distinction in the long run? On the arc of when we're all gone, five hundred thousand years, and obviously it's unknowable. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, no. I I think I like her perspective. I don't think I care to know about yeah, it yeah. or I care to imagine. And of course, Big my deal. lens is heavily biased as a biologist. Right. So of course, my biology. I mean, I, I I love evolution because the best part of evolution is it's unpredictable. Right. It's 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 not predictable, and that makes things very very beautiful. and that that what brings in newer and newer perspectives newer and newer things in him i mean we never evolved i mean when there were dinosaurs nobody even thought there would be humans there would nobody even thought that there would be neanderthals so we have evolved ourselves over a period of time and i think we will continue evolution till whatever time exists there is all this fascinating uh, uh, research well i'm not so i don't read that much about science but like how the evolution of flowers and dinosaurs is intertwined and that flowers actually led to the creation of humans right so now i found this is an amazing thing to read that this it, it appeals so, to the poetic side it appeals to my poetic side no doubt about it but it also actually that entangled nature of of the of entanglement how? of nature the entangled nature of existence i think is interesting i think that is a very i think the word entangled is interesting because even in some of what swati is saying or being a bit more forceful about is this trying to locate it all in this one body which is like standing here in 5 feet 8 inches and this weight or whatever everything is here uh that's probably a somewhat more unentangled view of the world and there's lots flowing in and out and there's this world and this flux and there's past and present and future and all kinds of organisms and we are not just us and there's like bacteria and what not inside us and there's gut and so like millions of things going on and mm. given that there are all these organisms and all this time and all these ideas and randomness and everything else um it is probably uh, an impulse reaction to this reductionism and it's understandable and so obviously what you're saying is understandable as well so that's the fun thing where where are we headed swati um 
I know, I know the answer. I just refuse to share it. No, um, no who knows? We'll give you a gift voucher. Yeah, really. <laughs> Thanks. I want the gift voucher anyway. Um, so I guess I would start by, by saying um, I think men and women are real. I think that uh, when people identify as male and female or as men and women, they are expressing a truth of themselves. It's not untrue. I think I would just um, think about the basis on which the kind of process of abstraction met like conceptual abstraction, not kind of non-physicality, but the conceptual abstraction by which a statement like I am a man or I am a woman becomes the truth of oneself. And I, I do think that we live in a historical moment in which biomedicine is asked to explain a lot and where that becomes the kind of basis of... Becomes the Supreme Court of everything. Authoritative yeah. um, knowledge production. You know, if you say that something is uh, quote-unquote biological, you're making a certain claim to a kind of immutability, a physicality, a, you know, it's really there. And my hope is that... And as though that entire epistemological enterprise and biologists are somehow not human beings and... That they're, yeah. yeah, that they're, they know that they have and a they have perspective. No biases, and, yeah. and real scientists don't think that. Real scientists that I know know that there are limits to what biomedicine can um, explain and that there's lots of mutability and that results can vary widely and that people are kind of trying to put their heads together to come up with a best estimation that is almost, almost, almost completely correct, but there's always a margin of error. And I think that would it you would agree, be... Deepak? No, I don't think, we, we, we don't think it that way. We think that in this time, this is what best we can explain. Which is not to say that this is how it shall be four and four for years and forever. later. No, it's, it's, it's evolving. But basis what you know today and what people Absolutely. before you have done. I mean, that's what I'm know. trying to express. Huh, Sorry huh. if that's not coming across. But yeah. yes, that I, I yes. think that... Um, People who work in the sciences are very clear that it's not an absolute truth. That's what the I'm trying to say. Theological end. It's it's converged. Fully that, resolved. You know that it's it it's the it's the best that we're doing with the tools that we have, and that those tools will evolve, and that it's not a kind of absolute truth-telling machine. Right? That truth never changes. And my hope is that in the future, we all become true scientists, you know, that we all understand the the relationship that the physical world has with the conceptual work that we as human beings have to do to live in it. So by the science dictionary, we don't say we are in search for truth. We say we are in search for facts. And But then you interpret them and you say... This is the fact for today. Yeah. With, with new tools coming in, with new Those facts become untrue. Yes, we retest Some of those them. facts become untrue. Some of them become untrue. So several years ago, we always believed Earth was flat. And then we evolved ourselves and said, no, Earth is round. Uh, we believed that everything moves around the Earth now. We say that things move around the Sun. So it's its perspective which comes. So we don't ever say that this is the truth. We say this is the fact for today. I think the question is whether sometimes non-scientists uh, have us. an impulse it could be an artistic impulse aesthetic whatever poetic um, that eh, this doesn't sound right maybe something else is true now I'm, I don't know molecular biology whatever the domain is this is just 
instantiation and sometimes there's an impulse about something else and maybe science converges or goes towards that and sometimes it doesn't so that's fine i think the world is messy but that's a good note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it and look forward to having us soon again thank thanks. you so much thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.